Superbrain is a labour of love. Alas, no podcast can survive on love alone. We don't have a sponsor, so we need your support for Superbrain to stay alive and kicking. You can make a one-off donation by following the Support This Show link in the show or episode description. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. My name is Sabina Brennan and you are listening to Superbrain, the podcast for everyone with a brain. Thank you for joining me as I take a deep dive into the life and brain of one of Ireland's most respected broadcasters, Mark Cagney. In this, the first of a two-parter, we talk about his life growing up in Cork, running away from home, family rifts, the tragic loss of his young life and making difficult decisions. In part two, Mark walks me through his own recent brush with death, his ongoing recovery, his thoughts about the future and his reflections on his past, with Mark speaking candidly about his cocaine use and the straight talking that made him quit. Mark Cagney, we have met on several occasions. Uh, we couldn't call each other friends. We don't know each other actually, really. The occasions we've met is um, I'm normally in the chair that you're in. So you've interviewed me a few times on a few occasions uh, for Ireland AM mm-hmm. TV show that you led for 20 years. And then more recently, you've interviewed me on the radio on uh, News Talk, mm-hmm. but remotely because we're in uh, lockdown. Your voice is unique. Uh, You have a wonderful voice for radio. I remember back, I'm of that age, I remember pirate radio stations for listeners who are quite young here, you mightn't be aware, but sort of when I was growing up, you had the boring sort of RTE, the national radio station, and then you could tune into Radio Luxembourg for the charts to hear some pop music. And then there was suddenly this explosion of pirate radio stations, which was, it just was so anarchic at the time. It was just really, really exciting to be hearing this. It just felt so new. And this is back at a time where we didn't have internet. We Ireland was very much a small island. Nobody came to do pop concerts here. You know, everything, we ate up everything that, well, I certainly did in terms of music from magazines mm-hmm. or, you know, other channels and this was really new and you were one of the first. Yeah, it's an interesting, culturally the country is so different it may as well be another planet. Mm. It's very hard to explain. I mean, it's hard to explain to our kids now what life was like before smartphones. To explain to them what it was like before satellite and multi-channel TV. Um, It's like trying to explain to somebody who has never seen a black and white photograph what it actually is, but without being able to show them. If You were a child of the 50s, as I was. I was born in 56. Obviously, I didn't live through the birth of rock and roll, but I would have been aware of it. And more importantly, I would have been aware of the effects of it. What it did culturally to kids, it was a total rebellion against their norms in terms of the music, in terms of the fashion that went with it, in terms of the the literature and the writing that went with it as well. So we thought about the world and our place in the world in a totally different way to the way that our parents would have. And our parents would have had their lives pretty well mapped out for them by their parents. And our parents' parents were Victorian, would have been born in the late 1900s, early part of the century. Um, And again, even with the benefit of history, it's very hard for us to understand what that would have been like. But Ireland and I suppose the world, but us later than most other parts of it, because we are basically a rock, a remote rock off the west coast of Europe. Technicolor came to us quite late Mm. and we were getting it in dribs and drabs. We were getting it in magazines. We were getting it in radio stations like Luxembourg or Radio North Sea and it would waft in and out and depending what the weather was, you might get it or not. So you read about this Technicolor world of youth and music and fashion and all that went with it. You had very few physical examples of it. So I came from 
I came up through that generation. Then obviously people on the east coast of Ireland had BBC and, and bear in mind that, that well, we had so I was born in 62 so yeah. a few years you know but it's around the same sort because as you say it was kind of slow yeah. slow happening a slow boil in Ireland and growing up we could get HTV which was Harlech uh, yeah, and it, it, Which is it, Welsh was, ITV. it was the Welsh TV. It was ITV, but we could just pick up the Welsh TV and I was the youngest of five. Mm-hmm. So I had to stand with the rabbit's ears <laughs> to try and get them, you know, because people got it through aerials yeah, yeah. or whatever. And the, it, Try explaining that noise. to kids now. It's pretty incredible to see the insular way we grew up and you were very much, I, I, like I totally identify with what you're saying. So my parents' generations, my dad was 42 when I was born. So he was born in 1921. They were of their generation, which was that they were just lucky to be alive and they were lucky to have a job and they just followed that. They didn't question, they didn't think outside the box as to how their life was to be lived. I don't think they realised there was choice. Or as they... I get older, I do realise, and I did have this convers- these conversations with my father eventually, they had exactly the same questioning and rebellious feelings that we did but they had no context in which to express them. Mm-hmm. You know, my father was a jazz musician and he grew up... Wow, I didn't know that. That was He was a professional musician. Yeah, oh, no, he did other things as well. He was also, um, he was in UCC, he lectured in electronics, etc., etc. Um, he was a brilliant mercurial man, smartest man I've ever met, bar his father, my grandfather, a mind that was like quicksilver and almost impossible to pin down could put his, turn his hand to anything, had his papers as a mechanic because he wanted to be able to fix cars properly. Also got his papers as a, a welder. So he had two trades. Right. As well as um, having gone to college to do electronics. But he was actually a musician first and foremost. And rock and roll used to be called the devil's music. Yes. But in actual fact, the first devil's music was jazz. He was every bit as rebellious and his generation, they had all the same rebellious feelings and thoughts. They, they didn't want what had gone before, but they didn't have either the outlet or the conditioning. I think they were conditioned in another way. Well, they, they, they were, were, conditioned yeah. not to question. Well, we were as well. But yes. I, I have to say, well, my father was quite, you know, he was a, a very, we had a very bohemian house. Give you an example of how he, things were, right? I lived at the top of Patrick's Hill in Cork. Yeah. And uh, all my friends lived you know, kind of halfway down the hill. And we were lucky because we had these two huge playing pitches, open green spaces. So during long summer evenings, um, the pitches would be full with all the local lads. We'd be playing football, some would be playing um, Gaelic, some would be playing soccer, some would be playing hurling, whatever. And at eight o'clock on a summer's evening, I'd have to go in. Yeah. Now, it wouldn't get dark until nine, half nine, but I would have to go in. And he would come out and he would call me in, which is mortifying. Mm-hmm. I would go home, you know, grumbling and, and mortified, embarrassed because like that I'd be going, hey, into bed early. But as soon as I got home, that was grand. I was in and then I could stay up until 12 o'clock. Oh. I could go and play records. I could read. Uh, we had, in those days, we were, the television was still very primitive and black and white. But, you know, you could do all of that. But it was just that my castle, my rules I want to go back to the music thing because, again, as I do with all my guests, I've been doing as much stalking of, of you as I can. And I did know that your father was a musician. I didn't know that it was the jazz bit. Well, um, he started out as a jazz musician. And he was a purist. Right. Uh, and, you know, jazz was the rock and roll of its day. And he did very well with that. Um, he moved up to Dublin. I played with some big bands up there. Real jazz, like Duke Ellington type jazz, almost symphonic jazz. And then, you know, Basie and the swing bands came in and he really loved that because he was a rhythm player. He was primarily um, guitar and bass and he, he was not interested, although he knew everything pretty much that there was to know about what he needed to play the way he did. But he was interested in rhythm and swing and driving and the pulse and the heartbeat. And he would go, listen, I don't care about solos. Because I used to say to him, how come you never solo? Guitar players didn't at that stage yeah. in because they were primarily a rhythm instrument. And he said, I, I'm no, no interested in that. He said, rhythm is king. Um, but the big bands um, became um, economically not viable. Then they became, uh, I suppose, jump bands and then effectively show bands. And if you have to remember when he would have started off, he would have been in bands like Billy Brown's band. There would have been 25 people, more, 15, yes. 20 people in it. That not a chance in a million years not making any years. money. <laughs> but as they slimmed down, they then became, became the show bands. Became the show bands. Ah. And um, he would have been in one of the first generation of show bands in Ireland in the 50s, a band called The Regal. Like his contemporaries would have been the early Royal Show Band and the Clipper Carltons and those people who were all ex-jazzers. And that when on Monday nights, which is the musician's night off, 
they would get together and jam in some club or some venue and then they would play their music which would be always be um, you know jazz um, and everything from some Dixieland swing uh, and then the cooler stuff um, you know Parker and early Duke Ellington and people like that you know oh. so I know that you had said somewhere that you always loved music you would have liked to have been Oh my first musical. choice would I wanted to be a musician you see, my father was a professional musician, but also so were two of my aunts. My right. my Mary, Your Aunt Mary a my Aunt Mary as well. and uh, Eileen. But Mary had the most successful career of them because um, she would have sung with a lot of those bands. And then she went to America. And before the Ed Sullivan show, which people of a certain generation will remember because it, it launched people like you know the Beatles and the Stones in the states. But I mean, he was the, he was the gay burn of of America at yeah, the time. Yeah. But before that, there was a guy called Arthur Godfrey who ran for years in the 50s in the States. And uh, his was a variety show rather than, you know, Jacho. And there was a talent opportunity Knox type aspect to yeah. that show. So he would bring on new performers and depending on how the audience voted or reacted to them, they would be kept on. There's some version of what is the voice yeah, and yeah. all those now. Absolutely. There's always been versions. They're not new things. Nothing new. Huey Green show was yeah. one that we Opportunity Knox. Up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, she ran on that show for 26 weeks. Wow. Uh, which would have been on primetime television in the States. Wow. Now, she got picked up by some producers in Broadway and she did her own show over there. She did a show on Broadway called The Bell of New York. Wow. And the signature role in that is Mimi. And that was Mary's role. So she had a very successful career. And then as a result of that, herself and Eileen, Mary would have been a, a much better all-round performer. But her sister, my aunt Eileen, had a much purer voice, technically a beautiful voice and could sing anything. Um, but hated performing. She was used mm. to be physically ill. Mary loved it. She was a natural born yeah. performer. But they were invited to tour with Arthur Fiedler and the Boston Pops. So she had a stellar career. I, I mean, she made records for Glenside. Remember back in the in the days of um, sponsored programmes, there used to be a programme called the Glenside Show. Uh, Glenside were an Irish record label. Um, I think that the tag was, if you're going to sing a song, sing an Irish song. <laughs> So Mary had quite a few records done for them, but she got tired of the road and she got fed up with it. You know, there's, it's great when you're in your 20s and your 30s, you get to mid-30s and on and, you know, it, it takes a toll. You get haggard, you get fed up of sharing a, a coach with, you know, 25 men and all that goes with that. And you just want to be at home, you know, you want to wake up in your own bed. So she came back, but while she was in America, she, be, she got very friendly with a, a woman called Helena Rubinstein or Helena Rubinstein. She was one of the Diane's of makeup and beauty. So she got very friendly with her. I think she might have been a fan of her music or whatever. And uh, Mary was a very striking looking woman and would have had to do her own makeup. You know, obviously would, you know, they didn't have makeup artists back those days. All the girls took care of it themselves and looked very glamorous because you're out in the road and you've got 25 men who are not going to help you with it. So she said, would you be interested in doing that? I'm going to open up in Europe. And then, um, so Mary went to work for her and there was the Helena Rubenstein counter in Leicester's pharmacy which is the like a boots well it would have been old school pharmacy right. but big and you, you mean you had the Munster Arcade you had Cash's you had Roche's stores and you had so Leicester's this is in Cork because you, this you is in grew Cork. up in Cork so yeah. when she came back she just basically went into the cosmetics business and right. she stood at that counter for I don't know another 25 or 30 so years so Mary played a huge role in your life there's oh, yeah. a couple of things I want to ask is and you did end up in a career in music as a disc jockey but did it was you, as close as I could get yes yeah, so why did you try could yeah, you yeah, yeah. My manual dexterity just wasn't there. I have a very good ear. Yeah. Um, I have pretty good time. Kind of a built-in clock yeah. and metronome. Just the fingers wouldn't work. Okay. Uh, maybe I tried the and wrong instrument. did you instrument try the, your voice as an I instrument? Couldn't sing no. Save My Life. Really? No, 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 no. Yeah, no, and that's funny because, you know... My, my father could sing as well, by the way. He was a good singer. Yeah. Like my father I mean, had hands like, like a labourer. Yeah. And you would go, how can he play... Yeah. And you want to hear him play the piano really... De- no, he, he actually really liked to stomp. He was, yeah. a, you know, but they're incredibly delicate. And he could work with tiny little screws and electronics and, and stuff yeah, like that. Isn't it interesting? And it's incredible. But what amazes me and like sort of, I suppose, and anyone out there as well, you know, if you have ever wanted to, you can try and you can learn some things at, at certain I ages. Tried and I tried enough. and I tried and I tried. And what's that? Is it from, I don't know, Shakespeare? Possibly. You can say Shakespeare. Who's going to disagree with you? But uh, be, care- <laughs> be careful lest you trample or crush my dreams. Um, yeah. My father was, as I said uh, a little earlier, he was incredibly bright. And worse than that, he had a facility to absorb knowledge. Mercurial, he could pick something up. What do you mean up. by Mercurial. Well, his his mind was mercurial in the sense of that it, he was always coming up with things. He was always looking at new things. He was always going at, oh, I could make that better. And he would, oh, right? right? 
he did have a mercurial temper too. Um, short and sharp and blow up, but not frightening. But his mind was constantly moving in different directions. And as he did that, he had the ability to absorb things. Like, for example, he could take up a new instrument that wasn't his primary or even yeah. secondary instrument. And, you know, I, rem- I remember one stage he was asked, there was a gig going with a really, really good uh, cabaret band. And they said, look, we don't need a guitar player, a bass player. We do need a um, piano player. Actually, what we really need is an organ player because in those days you could get organs that had bass pedals. Right. So he could take care of all the keyboard uh, stuff and then he, he could play the bass pedals as well. He said, well, I haven't done that. He said, well, g- give me give me one. So he got an organ and within two weeks he was good enough to go and right. get and paid. Play and, and play it. And get More importantly, not just play it, but actually play it to a level where it was acceptable yeah. for a professional outfit. So how was that for, for you? That's incredibly frustrating. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. For you growing up, how was that seeing... It meant you were never good enough. Remember, you that. could never do anything as well as he yeah, did. Yeah, yeah. He and would s- ask you to do a job and he would say, listen, strip that wallpaper or paint that and you do it to the best of your ability as an 11, 12, 13 year old. But it was just never. And then he was, oh God, if you want something done, do it yourself. Yeah. You know, yeah. and you just kind of... Now he, these days in this current woke world that we live in, you know, people would be on onto childline going, I'm being, you know, oh gosh, look after my esteem is being destroyed by yeah. my parents and all the rest. Yeah, of it. Yeah. But he just had that facility to get stuff really, really quick. He was super smart. He had an inquiring mind, and he had a facility to absorb stuff, yeah. and he would be able to absorb it and then use it. Uh, but he which would also, be frustrated by the way, by other people who can't operate at the same level as him. Yeah. The downside of that was is that because he could do that, his attention span was minuscule, and he didn't finish things. Oh, okay. So he didn't follow through. He just was flipping because it, because it came too easy to him. Right. Because it came way too easy to him, yeah. and and he didn't understand people for whom things didn't come easily too. For example, me with music. Yeah, you'd never yeah. live up to it you'd never match it you'd never I'd never be able to play an instrument like he was I'd never be as smart as he was I could never do things the way he did but I mean again the other side of that he was forever taking things apart and putting them back together again and they would work better it was extraordinary but it just drove my mother crazy we had this enormous dinner table in, in our house um, and there was like I have four sisters and three brothers so there was eight of us and you're the eldest of eight I'm the eldest right so the table had to be big enough to take all eight of us yeah. plus my parents and then of course my father going oh well look we always need a bit of extra room and my mother was a was a tailor stroke dressmaker so she needed a really a big, big ta- table for table, cutting right? out yeah exactly yeah. all of that kind of stuff so there was it was enormous I mean you could have fitted another six or eight people yeah. maybe another six people at it and I remember for months there was an engine at the end of that and the reason we all remember it is, is that because for about six or eight months our food all tasted of oil, oil because there was this Mercedes engine. He was fa- he was obsessed with Mercedes cars. The engine at the end of the thing that he was rebuilding and he was doing it. And I remember my mother losing her mind on occasions going, Jesus Christ, Johnny, I, I, I stick to death in the food tasting of oil. Will you ever get that bloody thing off it? That's it was like, it Sounds was like madness. Slightly, and I'm, I'm, I'm not diagnosing anyone, but it does sound slightly manic, you oh, know. Absolutely. It, yeah, it was yeah. mad and it was loose and it was bohemian and all of my friends thought it was, it was the brilliant. coolest place. So you've this fabulous sort of, well, it sounds sort of fabulous, unusual bohemian life. You have this amazing dad that you've just des- described and then at 16 Oh well it started before 15, that. You left? Because you're only a child whatever age whether you oh, were 15 yeah, yeah, or 16 yeah, no. my, you left my, home. For all his bohemian outlook on life and questioning everything and questioning convention and being you know quite unconventional in his own way he wanted a very conventional upbringing for us so my educational and career path was mapped out and he used to say listen go to college get your degree then you can have your life then you can do what you want but until then my house, my rules, this is what's going to happen. His father had been a, was a doctor, had been a surgeon. His brother was one. Um, another brother was in the Air Corps, was a competent in the Air Corps. But he was the rebel. Himself and Mary were the rebels. Both extremely successful in what they had Academically, to yeah, do. they'd all done well. But still, very conventional Cork. You know, you're going to the right schools. Right. So, I, so you're very posh, sort of. I had a very, I had a good, and, and, and yeah. his, I had a very good private education and so did my brothers. My my sisters went to St. Angela's at the bottom of Patrick's Hill. We lived at the top. I went to Christian's, which would be the equivalent of Blackrock, I suppose. Right. Christian's and Prez. So, yeah, I had the benefit of all of that. But my father had everything mapped out for me, right? And I had other ideas. And uh, I didn't want what he, um, I didn't want to go to college. I didn't want to be a doctor. I didn't want to be told what to do. I wanted to be able to grow my hair as long as I wanted. 
uh, I wanted to be involved in music in some form or fashion. And, you know, I was 14, 15, 16 and waiting till I was 22, 24 and came out of college just like 10 years is a lifetime of yeah. now and having any of that. And I was also, again, a bit like him, a lot like him, questioning and stubborn and um, like why. I painted a picture of him being kind of very authoritarian and he was in many ways. You know, we had a very boho uh, kind of existence and command structure and hierarchy within the house and then quite strict as far as it looked from the outside. But we were all encouraged. Um, my, my, one of my grandfather's great saying was that education is no burden. And you should I do everything you possibly can. Oh, yeah, absolutely. He said everything you should do everything you possibly can. Read as much as you can, yeah. learn as much as you can, ask as many questions as you can, because you, you can't know too much. He used to say, and what was another thing he used to say is, is that the older I get, the more I realise how little I actually really know. Yeah. So that was encouraged in our house. And a big house, people were sitting around talking, and you were encouraged to think and you'd be questioned on it. So you had to have sharp elbows, both physically and also mentally. And like I had the biggest mouth and I had the most questioning mind and uh, I didn't understand why the, the contradictions, you know, yeah. you didn't do what your father did. Yeah. You, if the, you know, you, you'd have taken over his practice, you'd have become a doctor like your brother Michael did. Yeah. I didn't want to do that. No, you want to do music, you want to follow your heart. Okay. Find something you love and you'll never work a day yeah. in your life. So that's what I want to do. My house, my rules, if you don't like it, there's the door. One day I went, okay, so I took the door. And... Uh, I've never really talked to him about what he thought or whatever, but he, his immediate reaction was, okay, son, made your bed, now you lie on it. I'm not going to ask you to come back. So when you, when you physically, because I remember walking out at 16 as well and being yanked back, <laughs> back home sort of thing, but when you walked out that door, did you know you were going to your grandfather? Did you go, what the hell? I had gone or? a couple of times first. Okay, uh, so there, there was a been, few failed attempts. There, there, was a few, there were a few failed attempts. And in actual fact, I did my... <laughs> I did my junior cert while sleeping in his car. In whose car? My father's car. I had left. Wow. And it was a real cute whore move on my part so that's because I hadn't 14. done the work. I that's knew around 14. I knew I wasn't going to get the exams. I hadn't done the work and I was bricking myself over. I went, this is, this is bad. I said, how, how can I create a diversion? <laughs> did you honestly think that? I was just like going, this is, I hate this. I'm not going to do this. It's not going to go well. I'm going to get killed. September's going to be awful. And there was a lot of trouble between us. There was a lot of arguing and fighting. And, uh, you know, I was the eldest also, you have to remember, and the experiment. And one of the things I've realised subsequently as a parent is, is that you, you really do learn on the job with the first one. The others get the benefit of yeah. it, right? And they were doing it and they had seven others. And they were come. learning from you as oh. well. They were watching because as a fifth child, I was the youngest. So I watched what yeah, the yeah. others did or didn't do, you know. I'd rebel. had a few breakouts um, um, before that and... Um, and also, I, there had been times because of whatever was going on with them financially where I had gone to live with my uh, mother's parents, my nana and pa, who were lovely. I was blessed with two great sets of grandparents uh, who I loved dearly, really loved dearly. And then Pop was, my father was his favourite. He yes. was his pet. And at another stage, I went to live with them in a house called Cool Carol in Bishopstown. Cool Karen, which I adored. I loved. I just thought, this is lovely. This is brilliant. It's just me and Pop and Mom and Mary and all of this space and nobody else. No kids. I wanted to be yeah. an only child. But anyway, I, 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 I knew the junior was going to be a disaster and I literally was like, I have to, what am I going to do? Well, either I can't not do it because they'll make me. But if something was to happen that I couldn't do it for some reason or other, then I'd get away with it. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. 
If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Something happened. and The rows would always start between myself and my mother. And then she'd go, Johnny, you need to talk to him. And then she'd kind of make the bullets and he'd fire him. Right. So he did what so your mum said. So there was a blazing row between myself right. and my between myself and my mother over something. He came in and there was some row over it, and I I actually remember the details of it, but I stalked off. And then she's going, but but what? He's he's got his junior. What's he going to do? What's he going to do? You you can't do that. That's just ridiculous. I'm not having it. He knows what the rules are. There's the door. Get out. Thinking, of course, that I'd be back as soon as I got hungry. Um, and I didn't. I went down to my best friend's, Kevin Minan's house, and um, I got fed there. And then it was. Um, I was able to stay with him that night and then the second night was a bit like hang on a second how come you're not going home so where was I going to go so that, this is back in the days when people didn't lock their cars mm. so I, I kind of had to creep back up the hill and uh, I was like what am I going to do I'm not staying out here I tried the car the car door opened and I went in and I slept in the car and the junior was starting The that was over the junior. course of the weekend it was starting on the Monday it was and I think the first two or three days I slept in the car. Now, they knew I was in the car. And right. my, my mother would come out with a bit of breakfast and <laughs> all the rest of it. But of course, you know, it was completely disrupted. Eventually, it kind of calmed down and it, I think it got really cold one of the nights or something and it was like, oh, God's sake, get back inside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he wouldn't say, you have to come home or I'm asking you, it's just like, get back inside you. But the plan worked because I failed the junior. But of course, I couldn't be blamed for it because sir, how could I do proper junior certified? I was living in a car. Yeah. At that stage then, I would have been... 15 that coming September and then there was kind of um, guerrilla warfare between both of us on and off. Both of us, yourself and your dad or yourself and your mum? My, myself and my parents. Yeah. And there was, there was, and I was an absolute pop. I was just difficult. I was awkward. You were a teenager. Well, yeah. And, uh, and I was a moaty, gobby one. And yeah, but most teenagers are, you manipulative know. Manipulative and, you know, Cunning. You've said at some point in, in, in an interview that I read um, that you blamed yourself for a lot of the upset and turmoil oh, yeah. that happened in your family. But surely the adults have to take some responsibility for well, that too. You want to find out how I got to my grandfather. Here's, here's And it's, it's interesting that you take that point of view, right? Fast forward a year and things hadn't gotten any better. And then I was having trouble in school as well. In the year I went back after my, um, my junior and uh, there was rules and regulations and I eventually told one of the senior brothers to go and pick off and there was more trouble so it, I, like I was suspended and then I was thrown out and this was coming up to the Christmas and there was murder going on in the house and it was just desperate and you know you've ruined Christmas you've spoiled it and da 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 da, da. and eventually I thought right do you know what I've had enough of this and I found a lot of money well a lot of money at the time in a drawer and I went Right, okay. Mm-hmm. And at this stage now, I'm coming up to 15, 16, right. Um, I wasn't mad about drink, but there were like house parties and all that kind yeah. of stuff. And I had a friend whose uh, parents had a uh, um, couple of um, cottages, I suppose you would call them, but they were rented out and the people they were rented out to were away over Christmas. So he was going to have a party in one of those. And he said, will you come to the party? And I went, okay. He said, well, like, we can stay there for a couple of nights because the people... Their parents were, are away or something. They're away, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, so... Um, so I went to that, went to the party, had a great time and it was free for about a week. I left on Christmas Eve, by the way, for maximum effect. Oh, my goodness. Oh, maximum effect. Well, oh, am I going to ruin Christmas? I'll ruin it properly. And I left with a bunch of money, which obviously wasn't mine. So I couch surfed, I suppose, or whatever you would yeah. call it back then, for as long as I could. And that went on for about a week. And then got into January and nobody had any idea who I was because very few people had phones back in those days. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. So trying, trying to find... And we're talking house phones, not mobile phones. Oh, yeah. yeah. So um, anyway, eventually, Whedon said, listen, um, they're coming back. You're going to have to go. You're going to have to find somewhere else. And I, I dosed with somebody else for another night or two. And then I had nowhere to go. So I was literally on the streets. And I remember finding a doorway in North Main Street in Cork and getting run out of it because it was somebody else's doorway. Wow. So it was a bit like, and again, you're kind of 16, you think you're brave, but actually it's cold. It's yeah, bitterly cold. Yeah, it freezing. Yeah, and yeah. some hairy, shaggy fellow who looks like he's, you know, like like something from a Dickens novel, says, get out of there with mine. Um, and gives you a route in the arse um, to send you on your way. So eventually I worked my way out to the Western Road. And I remember getting right opposite the entrance to UCC, there was a, a, a kind of a seated area. 
yeah. with a canopy on it where, you know, people would uh, would stop and rest and whatever. So I just thought, oh, look, there's a bench there and it's covered. So, but it was getting bitterly cold at this stage. I kind of settled down there, freezing my... You may have picked the time of the year for maximum effect. Uh, but yeah, it really well, uh, wasn't yeah, a good time of the year no, for, wasn't. <laughs> for um, rough living. I got run out of that again. And I just thought, well, Western Road, I'm on my way out to Bishopstown. That's where Pop and Mary are. So I'll just keep walking because at least if I'm walking, I'm I'm, right. I'm going to be warm. And eventually I ended up out on their door at about four, half four in the morning. And they had known, obviously, that I had gone missing and they were aware. So she went, come on, come in, fed me, warmed me up and uh, rang my father and said, look, he's OK, he's here. You might want to leave it a day or two to calm down. Yeah. So my father came out and my father and my grandfather were, as I said, they were like best buds. And he adored him. And they, they had a big row over it. And he just said, I'm not putting up with this. You don't know what he's like. And you know, this is the straw that has broken the camel's back and all the rest of it. To hell from him, he's not. And, and my grandfather turned to him and said, listen, no grandchild of mine is going to be wandering the streets. That's just not going to happen. He said, you've no idea what he's like. Well, if you think he's so easy, well, you take him then. So and he said, well, he's got to go somewhere. And he's a child and you're an adult. You're taking his side against mine. He said, you're a grown up. You need to behave like one. And if you're not going to do that, then he's got to go somewhere. So he'll stay here. You can't do that. What are you going to do? You don't take my son. He said, oh, we'll see what people have to say about that. And I remember Pop saying it. He said, well, good luck with going into court against Dr. Paddy Cagney now. Because he had, would have been highly, highly respected. So like, my father was livid and furious and it caused a huge rift between the two of them, which I am to this day deeply sorry for. And did they it, ever he, heal the rift? He would have gone to visit his father two or three, well, at least once a week, maybe twice a week, um, every week. And we would go with him. From there on in, he would ring ahead to say, I'm coming, make sure make he's sure, not, make sure make I'm sure, not there. All right, okay. So those visits dropped to maybe once every fortnight and it was kind of, it had to be arranged and it was awful. It was awful yeah. and I deeply regret that that happened. The only thing I will say in my defence was is that my grandfather was at that stage going into um, senility or early Alzheimer's or whatever and he would go in and go out of lucidity and he became a handful to manage. I yeah. mean, he was physically, he was a great big strapping man but he didn't know where he was a lot of the time. So you ended up looking after him a, a I, bit? I did and it was a, a pleasure and a privilege and yeah. it was something that helped me grow up a lot. It was the first time I'd ever really thought of anybody other than myself Yeah. and it was somebody I loved yeah. deeply and who was a huge influence on me and I not just loved but I admired. I won't say at the time that I, I consciously was doing it for my father or, or being a surrogate for my father but I subsequently think that there must have been you some of that. You can frame it that way. Well, yeah. I know that Mary said, she said, you know, you know, your father's right, you are a pup. And, you know, I didn't know whether we made the right, right or wrong decision. She said, but when I saw you with Pop and the way you were with him, she said, I thought, you know what, he'll be grand. We just need to work on it a bit and get yeah. it out of him. So that was a very formative I'm sure experience. your father saw that too. Do you think? Uh, Hard to I'm know? not sure. You see, there's two acts of forgiveness that need to go on there. One was that I robbed him of that but also that he robbed himself of that. There was absolutely no reason why he couldn't have visited his father. I mean, I could have gone to the room. Didn't matter. Is your father's passed away, still alive? Oh, my father's gone. Gone. Yeah. 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 So, but it, it, that rift never really healed and I was, you know, you tore the family apart. Mm. And there were, people took sides, you know, and, it, and people took sides of my own family, my own immediate family. I mean, it went on for donkey's years. But there does come a point where you have to self-preserve or you have to make peace with what happened and and move on because it's the only way you can kind of survive. You kind of get stuck in a moment. And I'm going to jump forward because this podcast is all about surviving and thriving in life. And when you go through your life story, <laughs> you've you've endured an awful lot of you have I've made people endure a uh, lot no 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 but you've also you know you've lived through you've mentioned your first wife and, and she tragically died very very young and I really do want to talk to you about that so you met Anne about nine when you were about 19, 19 yeah she had health time. issues she'd because had nephritis oh yeah, she had nephritis yeah. and she was seven and um, her kidneys were in the process of failing. She was on dialysis. While you, when you were dating. Oh, yeah, yeah. It was, it was, she was that. I she found out, that. do you know how I found out about that? We were, we were dancing one night and I had a leather jacket on. And even though the music was quite loud, I could hear a kind of a, zzz, kind of a buzzing and, and feel a little vibration on my shoulder. And I went, the hell is that? Yeah. You know, and it was in a nightclub where I worked as well. And I just thought, is there something wrong with the speaker or whatever? And she didn't say anything. Yeah, she just kind of gave a little smile. And I went, but do you not hear that? Am I going mad? And she went, yeah, 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 listen. And then a little afterwards, we were 
sitting down and I was holding her hand and she had what's called a fistula, which is where they join a vein and an artery to make the blood pump faster to go into the, the dialysis machine. Right. It's a joining of the two. And she used to do it as a joke to freak out nurses who were taking her pulse for the first time. She'd give them the left hand and they'd put their hand on the fistula and they'd go, oh my God, like they'd been, because it's almost like getting an electric, electric shock. shock. You could feel the buzzing. And it was, That's and what I always remember that. It was the buzzing of that on the leather jacket. And I just went, what the hell is that? So then she explained. Oh, the other thing as well, I could never understand why she wouldn't let me bring her home because she would go to the club She'd only drink water and chips of ice, so she didn't yeah. drink any alcohol. Um, and then at two or three, she would disappear. Or she'd go, no, sorry, I'm up early in the morning. No, I'm going home with the girls or whatever. But she was actually going to Finbar's to be dialysed. Wow. She used to have her dialysis done in the middle of the night. Wow. And then she would come home, get some sleep, and then she'd go to work. Wow. So she, to, to all intents and purposes, she was completely normal. Yeah. And you would never, ever know unless she chose to tell you. And so that's how I found out that she was a dialysis patient. Wow. And so then you married relatively young. Um, uh, yeah. I met her when I was 19 and we were going out with each other for a couple of years. And then what age was I? I married when I was 24. Do you know what year you got married? Um, no, I have to calculate. I calculate no. our relationship in different ways, right? <laughs> um, we were married on the 28th of March. Yes. And so our wedding anniversary was recently. And the 28th of March is also, of her death. is also the death. That yes, was 30 I years did, ago. I, did, so I noticed that. 30, um, hang on a second now. 30 years ago last Sunday and we had been married for 11 years. So that's 41 years and we'd been together for six years before that. And so she's dead 20 years she's, now. She's dead 30 years. 30 years, years 30 now. years since last uh, 28th of March. So very tragic, very young 38. She, she was 38, 38 and you I were younger than her. I yeah, you were. Four years older. You were 34. And to phrase this question about how did you cope because you didn't really cope. I mean, no. obviously, you have gone on to survive and thrive, but at the time. Well, um, she collapsed. She collapsed in, in, Brown in Brown Thomas. She'd had the first hemorrhage there. It was a brain hemorrhage? Subarachnoid, yeah. yeah. Okay. And they took her to the Meath. Hospital. Yeah. And I got a call, ended up going to the Meath. Uh, we were told, look, uh, we're not sure, something in her head which might be a hemorrhage. We're going to do a CAT scan. Now, back in those days, CAT scan was a big deal. Mm. It was a bit like, oh, something to do with the brain. Yeah. And uh, they had to move her from the Meath then to Beaumont. Beaumont handled all sort yeah. of head injuries yeah. and neurology, neurology at the time. Yeah. So um, we sat around there. They did the CAT scan. They came back and said she's had subarachnoid brain hemorrhage. Thankfully, that bleed wasn't too long, but we've also found that there's another vessel on the other side. I don't know which one. There's the vertebral is on the right-hand side. I don't know what vein is on yeah. the other side, right? But there was one on the other side at the back of her head, which was ready to go as well. Interestingly enough, because of all of the messing around with veins and fistulas, and at that stage, she'd had two kidney transplants. Mm -hmm. So, th like, her cardiovascular system had been interfered with I mean lot. she'd been ill since yeah, for yeah. 21 years really so, so. The, there were little bulges and potential embolisms and, and apparently also she had, had what, what was known as a tangle of vessels which I believe is quite common Right. that a lot of people have them and women in particular seemed at that time to be more prone to brain hemorrhages in okay. their mid to late 30s I, I've no idea whether that's true or I must have a look into that Yeah. but anyway she had another vein or artery which was ready to pop or was bulging or they were worried about it. And they said, look, this one was a very short. Um, I think this the first bleed was for two or three seconds. Okay. She said, this one... Could be much longer. More could dangerous. be much longer, much more dangerous. We have to go in and we have to fix it. Now, that's a really, really big deal for an awful lot of couples and an awful lot of people. But when you had gone to the edge uh, as often as Anne and I had with various things, with, with kidney transplant, which was groundbreaking surgery back in the time, and she had got really, really sick at one stage and spent nearly 18 months in Mary's in the Park wow. because she got shingles, which in her case ended up with practically every inch of skin from her neck down to her belly button being taken off. I mean, oh. she, it was dreadful. It was awful. And you're only kids really, in a way, going are, through this. We are. Yeah, and we're in are. Dublin and we're... At, you and you know, can say that with hindsight. Like in, in my late 50s now, you look back and you realise that your 20s, you really are kids and even your early 30s. But she you're was just a pro. Kind of learning. Yeah, she, she was she, a pro. She was a pro. She obviously it. had to grow up very young, yeah. it, it, you know. She would put herself on and off the machine. She would, she would do because she could insert the needles better than any nurse or any doctor. Because yeah. She was so expert at it and she knew. 
Um, so they're going to take her into for surgery. So she was conscious. Was she conscious between she the was, first yeah. and she you were talking? She woke up. We're having a conversation. And I'll never forget the last conversation was, because um, it was, look, this is what she did. She went into the ring. She fought the battle. She always won. I held her coat and held the fort down. And it was, you've had this. There's another one on the other side. It needs to be sorted out. Otherwise, you could have a big problem. And she went, yeah, OK, come on. This is what I do. Yeah. Uh, and I always win. And she said, oh, by the way, you know, it's been there tomorrow. I said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. She said, make sure you put the bins out and don't forget to feed the dogs and I'll see you when I wake up. And those were the last words we spoke. Oh, that's... So she went, she had it. She was in, a, in an induced coma. Um, coma. She didn't really... That's uh, to protect her. Regalia, yeah, yeah. Um, and it stayed like that. And then she had another massive... Um, Hemorrhage. On... I have to remember the time frame because it all blurs. I can imagine. Um, the initial hemorrhage in Brown Thomas happened on the 18th and then two days later they operated. So it was the 20th and then she was recovering for two or three, four, four, four or five days and then she had another massive um, bleed which went on for, they thought, in the region of 18 seconds and it was over and done with. It was gone. Mm. She was gone. Um, that was actually, oh, that was the 24th, yeah, 24th, 25th. Um, and they went, look, we'll ventilate her, but we have no idea how long this could go on. And um, if, I don't know if you know about brainstem. It could be three hours, it could be three days, it could be three weeks, it could be three months. You know, it'll happen when it'll happen. Now, at this stage, my head is fried, melted, because I thought, She'd win. She always did. She never, she never Yeah, lost. I think for you, compared to other people, I think other people w- say she'd ha- no previous history and then had this, you'd be going, oh my God, she could die. Oh my God, oh my God. But because you'd had that repeated, yeah. Indestructible. Yeah. You'd been there before. More routine, I suppose. Well, she was the strongest person I knew, you know. Yeah. And she just refused to allow this to define her and to beat her. Um, but you have to face facts and... Um, people were very sorry and all the rest of it so I, I, I remember being told that and I went off to try to get my head clear and uh, I remember coming back about a half hour 40 minutes later and talking to the staff nurse the senior nurse on the ward and saying listen I know when she'll go and he went she went yeah said she will go on the 28th and she'll probably go somewhere around tea time and she went yeah, yes Mr Kennedy whatever you say she said listen you don't know her I do she didn't get to say goodbye she will go on the 28th around five or six o'clock. And she said, really, why? I said, because that was the day we got married and that's when we sat down to our meal for our wedding. And she'll say goodbye then. Mm. That's, that's when she'll go. And that's exactly when she went. Now, I had to give the permission to switch the machine yeah. off. You yeah. know, I had to give permission for that. Um, that's a very challenging hardest, decision for a 34-year-old. Hardest. But um, what do you do? Mm. Every now and again, and I've never actually, I get me to say things here, I'm possibly leaving too much out on the pitch, you know. You do these kinds of things over the years and people ask you, oh, what's the hardest thing you ever had to do? Or who's the most famous person you've ever interviewed? Or, you know, you get those kind of 20 questions type things, right? And somebody recently asked me about what was the hardest thing I've ever had to do. And the hardest thing that I personally have ever had to do is, is give permission for that machine to be switched yeah. off. Um, when you actually think about it, this is your life, this is your soulmate. And even though she's, you know, intellectually that she's gone and that it would be, you know, the cruelest thing you possibly could do not to. Well, sounding by the kind of independent individual she that, was, exactly, she that, would have just hated that. Yeah, absolutely. She would have. But yeah. then there's this thing, she's also the toughest person that you've ever met. And if anybody could defy the, the odds and come back, it would be her. But you right. knew at this okay. stage it was gone. Okay. Okay. So I hadn't, I hadn't thought about that, that argument that you were having in your head. But oh my God, that's the ex- dreadful. Yeah, the extent of the hemorrhage was so severe that she could have existed. But Did you make that decision alone? I mean, I know well, you I'm were her next, next to kin. To kin. Yeah. So you didn't discuss with her parents or anything. You just... Uh, no, it was my decision. Right. Um, oh, no, I was there with her brother. Right. Who um, was brilliant, Eric, um, who's like a brother. But the biggest lesson that I took out of that, and it does apply to the parenting thing a little later on, which is, uh, you can, go, well, 
you can go mad and I did go mad okay eventually I had really good friends around me they pulled me back and all the rest of it and then you have to think about well what do you do well you can go on or you can go under and how do you go on when you've lost all of this and it's the I mean it's very simple it's that glass half full or glass half empty I had an amazing relationship I had it for 16 years and there's millions of people who don't get that at all mm-hmm. So be grateful for what you had, not for what you've lost. Or more importantly, don't be bitter about what you've lost. Because as um, Nelson Mandela famously said, being bitter is like drinking the poison, hoping the other fellow will die. It doesn't work. It only mm. poisons you. So what you had was wonderful. It's awful that it's been taken away. But we didn't have, and this is maybe the most valuable lesson and the one that actually helps me with the second phase of my life, which is that there was nothing left unsaid between us. We had the most normal ordinary, mundane conversation that you could possibly have before somebody going for major surgery, which, you know, wasn't successful and ultimately led to her death. You know, if your last words with somebody you love, if you had a choice of what they would be, you'd probably pick something really flowery and profound, whatever, right? Mine was about putting the bin out and making sure the dog was fed and I'll see you when you wake up. But that was also the very fabric of our lives and our love and the way we were together. So in one way, it is the most banal and ordinary. On another level, it's a perfect expression of the life I had, which I loved and which she loved. But there was nothing left unsaid between us. See, I think that's a lovely, lovely, lovely way to look at bereavement of any kind, particularly sudden bereavement. Uh, just another day in paradise. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's a lovely way. That's just so lovely. Just another day in well, paradise. No, a very ordinary paradise, but like our paradise. Yeah, so but, that's all but, that you want. Yeah, yeah. But do you know the lesson it taught me, Sabrina? What? Right? Make sure, make sure that you tell the people you love and you care for and who love and care for you how you feel. Not in a big, grand yeah. gesture, but just, I do it with the kids all the time. And I check in with them every now and again. I go, listen, you know I love you, don't you? You know you can tell me anything. You know, no matter what you do, I have no choice. I have to love you. Like that goes with the gig. It's unconditional. I might not like you sometimes. In fact, I might not like you a lot of the times, <laughs> but I'll always love you and I'll always have to love you. And no matter what you do or whatever trouble you get in, yeah. come and talk to me about it. We'll sort it out first and I'll eat the ears off you afterwards for being stupid enough to put yourself yeah. in that situation. But, but I you will know never that. not love you. Absolutely. So there's nothing left unsaid. So therefore... There are no regrets. There's no torture because that way lies despair. It's the old, you keep looking into the abyss of what if, forgetting, of course, that the abyss looks back into you. To paraphrase Goethe. Um, I'm not sure that he quite meant it like that, but that way lies madness and that way lies despair. And either because I'm incredibly lucky or maybe my survivor's instinct was operating on overdrive at the time that I got incredibly smart. In some way, a combination of the two, it saved me. No, I didn't need help, but I didn't need medication. But I, I, and I, I didn't need I didn't need to go to see doctors. I didn't need therapy. I didn't need any of that. You needed friends. I needed friends. And you had great friends. I had great friends. And that's what really struck out I've to me. I've been grateful for what I had. And, I, you know, in terms of surviving trauma, because life throws... I say this time and again, we have no control over what life throws at us, but you have control over how you respond. You went back to work way too soon after losing your wife and you can kind of see how that, you know, might have happened. And you said you had whatever you felt was a a breakdown, but you hadn't gone through the grieving process at all. You know, it's very clear now that you've made peace with that and that unconditional love piece is so important. And I think when it comes to love, you know, I see people and, you know, you kind of look at them and I've said this over and again on this, you know, the movies and novels have an awful lot to answer for because they paint this picture of what love is, you know, and oh, he does this for me and he does that. Look, for me, it's that mundanity. You know, I'm married to someone, we sort of say, oh, Valentine's Day, I'm not getting you a card. I'm not getting you a card. Couldn't be arsed. But you know what? I've had terrible migraine this week and it goes down into my neck and my husband will look at me and say, you're in bits, aren't you? Yeah. And he's, he'll stop everything and yeah. try and help relieve me. That's love. That's, you know, you don't have to yeah. say those things. And that's life. It's the other stuff. You know, you can say, I love you. You'd be-. You can say all those things. Moon but and it's June how and the honeymoon lasts for how long? Yes, exactly. What do you exactly. do with the rest of your life? Exactly. You you become. Do you want to be best. around them. Who's the first person you want? To, if something happens to you, who's the first person you want to tell? Who's, who's the, the first, first person, person you, you need call? to who's tell? Who's the first exactly. person you yeah. need? Yeah, yeah. It is That's about the friendship. It really is. It's ultimately about friendship and trust and all those things. And it was wonderful to hear as well that you know 
when you were really struggling, there was another individual who actually took you out. I was interested in one thing you said. He basically took you out and took you away and you went travelling with him for John Marion. Um, John Marion uh, O'Hurley. Um, Marion would have been, um, well, I've known Joe since I was 15. We started in bands together in Cork. He roadied for one band, I roadied for another. So I'd known him on and off. Um, he obviously has famously become one of the best known sound engineers in the world because he's been with you two for 40 years. He's known as the small fat fellow with the beard. He looks like <laughs> Grandpa Walton. Like he's legendary in rock and roll circles, right? Yeah. But his wife Marion and Anne would have been best friends. So like it's the real Cork Murphy kind of thing, you know? So we would have been in and out of each other's houses. Um, and actually that friendship has continued on. But, you know, when, when I, I rang Marion actually to tell her that, that Anne was sick, something had happened to her and she was in the Meath and they live in Rathdown Park in Terran York. But Joe was away and Marion didn't have the car. And she physically ran, and I mean ran, from Terran York to the Meath yeah. to get there in time. And I, I was following out in a taxi and uh, I think she got there before I did. Um, or j- literally, we pulled in as she was soaked in sweat. Yeah. You know, that's the kind of, of friend so you you're can talking talk about, about. You can talk about family till the, the cows come home and people say blood is thicker than water, but the support of very real friends, you can't Well, you know they, that really, it's, it's probably quite sexist and it's definitely not PC, um, but the, the joke about a true friend is you ring them up and you say, listen, I'm in real trouble. What have you done? I've killed the wife. Okay, stay there. We'll be around with the show <laughs> We'll be around with the shovel as fast as we can. Definitely not PC. Definitely not but PC. But you know that, you know, that sort of, sort of the people who would take a bullet for you would yeah. stand in front of, you know, would throw themselves in front of a train for you. Like that, I, I was lucky enough to have people like that in my life. And yeah. John Marion would definitely, certainly at that stage, without them. And again, but, but look, even Peggy O'Brien, um, she was the host mother in 98 of M and she would do that. You know, she would go, he's in trouble. He needs a cup of tea. More importantly, he needs a hug. He needs somebody to hold on to right now. And she would find an excuse, ask me, did I want a cup of tea? Bring it in and then hug me until I kind of could speak properly. Yeah. Or until I could do my you next You can't leg. underestimate the power of a human hug. And, and, no. and living through this lockdown is why it's quite challenging for people. But actual physical contact and a hug can lower your blood pressure and yeah. actually really get your stress levels down. It really works. I'm afraid that's all we have time for in this episode, but please do tune in next week when I continue my conversation with Mark. In the interim, you can check out the Superbrain blog for bonus content. My name is Sabina Brennan. Thank you for listening to Superbrain, the podcast for everyone with a brain. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium.